In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. When Brexit and Covid collide, we look back at the turbulent events of the past seven days, looking at how and why the European Commission, when presented with a nut reached for the sledgehammer of Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. What were the politics of the EU's vaccine strategy that led to that moment and how did Dublin, London and Belfast react to the extraordinary moment last Friday when the news broke? We'll assess what happens next and how the Northern Ireland Protocol is once again a battlefield between London and Brussels with the Irish government caught in the crossfire. And as reaction to the protocol takes on a sinister edge with intimidation at Larne and Belfast ports, We'll get the views of Katie Hayward of Queen's University, one of the most respected and astute analysts of Brexit and the politics of Northern Ireland. But first, Tony, cast your mind back to last Friday. I think you said to me at the time that your phone almost melted. Yeah, so I was actually on a flight to Rome from Brussels um, for family reasons and I should assure viewers that uh, I followed all the uh, Belgian and Italian protocols. Uh, I had a test before I went, uh, a negative COVID test uh, and so on and so forth. But when I was in the air, uh, the flight was about uh, five o'clock Brussels time, four o'clock Irish time. News broke that the European Commission had published a a regulation, a piece of legislation. It was actually an emergency piece of legislation. And buried quite near the end, there was a small, but it turned out to be uh, an explosive reference to Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Protocol and Article 16. Uh, And that really, once that hit hit the wires and uh, hit the social media, it it caused all sorts of... uh, ripple effects and and chain reactions so just I suppose it's worth getting in. into you like what were they trying to achieve how did this because largely I suppose people will remember a lot of the angry scenes so to speak last week on the European front where exchanges between the commission and the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca and then all of a sudden Brexit burst into the room how did that happen yeah so there was, as you say, a very public uh, row between Europe, the European Commission and AstraZeneca. And that's basically because AstraZeneca had entered into a contract with the, the European Commission to provide up to 400 million doses of their Oxford uh, vaccine. And the previous, previous uh, Friday... Uh, or perhaps even the two Fridays before that, the uh, company had told the European Commission, actually, instead of getting 81 million doses in the first quarter, we're only able to deliver um, around 30 million doses. Uh, And that caused an extremely angry reaction 
from the from the Commission and from member states who were already obviously angry, depend, already angry yeah, at, at, the, at the slow rollout of the vaccine in Europe and they were depending on this vaccine. It was the big game changer. It was, you know, it's easier to handle, easier to store. This was going to be the moment when vaccine rollouts in Europe were, was really going to happen. This is going to lead to this mass vaccination and that Europe would then catch up with uh, countries like the UK, which had started earlier and, and were uh, significantly ahead in their vaccine programmes. Um, so in the run up to what happened last Friday, there had been a, a fairly public dispute between the Commission and AstraZeneca about what the contract meant, what the obligations were, whether the doses were only going to come from a Belgian plant which had problems or whether, according to the European Commission, doses should be produced from four uh, AstraZeneca facilities, including two in the UK. And without really spelling it out, the European Commission was clearly of the view that um, doses that were destined for member states were actually instead going to the UK uh, and that there had been some kind of hierarchy whereby AstraZeneca would honour its contract with the UK but but wouldn't honour it with uh, the European Commission. And this all culminated, in fact, in the European Commission making the, the company or asking the company to publish the contract that governs this whole rollout. And that contract was published on Friday morning. And, you know, most people who looked at the contract uh, even though they weren't uh, necessarily that qualified, but even qualified people. Yeah, like, I heard uh, Gavin Barrett. The Gavin Barrett from the UCD said it law, looks yeah. like um, it looks like the commission is right on this. Uh, it looks like they it's you know it's clear that the company had to provide the 400 million doses from four plants, um, including those in the UK. It looks like the company signed up to uh, ensuring that any other contract it had entered into didn't supersede the contract with the European Commission. So for a couple of hours on Friday, the Commission seemed to have kind of, you know, won that particular round of, of, of the game uh, and, you know, at least could say, look, you know, we expected these deliveries. If the rollout is slow in, in, in Europe, it's not our fault. It's because the company didn't abide by the terms of the contract. Um, and uh, and people were starting to think, well, maybe the Commission has a point here. There were now, even some in- rhetorical flourishes from the health commissioner, Stella, Stella Kiriakides, saying that the, the law of first come, first serve might apply in the local butcher shop, but it didn't cut any ice when it came to procurement and contracts like these. Yeah, I mean, this was exactly the sort of tone of the debate. It was, you know, it was very acrimonious, very public. Um, the CEO of AstraZeneca, Pascal Sorio, had given a long interview to uh, Die Welt uh, and La Repubblica. To, uh, it was a joint interview where he basically said that, you know, the, the company was only constrained by best efforts to deliver doses on time the commission said no the best efforts part was to uh, you know was the fact that you were developing the vaccine not knowing if it was going to be approved or not um, uh, and otherwise once it was approved you were pretty much under obligation to deliver the doses per contract because Politically as well, the, the European Union had spent, you know, hundreds of millions, 336 million euro, uh, which was given to the company to to do just that, to develop the vaccine and to ramp up production accordingly. Um, but as part of this kind of concern for the for the Commission that 
vaccines were were leaking out of the European Union going to third countries, they announced a transparency mechanism to make sure that that wasn't going to happen. And I think part of that was to say to other pharmaceuticals companies, look, we, we will know where your stuff is going. And if your stuff, your doses are meant to be coming to, to European company countries, according to the contract, you know, we want to make sure that that is out there and known about uh, and that doses aren't going elsewhere. Um, now, initially, this was all being done under DG Sante, the European Commission's health division. But uh, there was a direction, uh, as far as I am aware, uh, from Ursula von der Leyen's cabinet that no, this should be a trade instrument, uh, which would give it, uh, you know, more teeth, and it, you know, trade instruments can essentially be done quickly by by the European Commission. So this was sort of shifted over to the territory of Valdis Dombrovskis, who's the trade commissioner, of course, the successor to Phil Hogan. Um, and before we knew it, there was a regulation being prepared during the week with all the different. European Commission services feeding into it, including DG Sante, the health division, also DG Taxhood, which deals with uh, customs. Uh, and um, a document was circulated to the different cabinets of the Commission on Friday morning, spelling out how this uh, regulation would work. Um, but on Friday morning, there was no mention in the document of any Northern Ireland component to this, uh, which is why people are so you know, puzzled as to how this could have happened at, you know, so late in the day. Um, because, the, as, as you know, the regulation was eventually mm. published on, on Friday afternoon. Um, so what seems to have happened was that, that, that this, this paragraph about Northern Ireland in Article 16 was put in at the last minute. And, you know, according to quite a few officials I've spoken to, the cabinets themselves, you know, the different uh, um, the, the teams of the different commissioners, didn't see it or or didn't see it until 30 minutes before it was published and only then would they have noticed if they'd looked way down at the bottom in the kind of you know terms and conditions would they have seen that there was a reference to uh, to Northern Ireland now what what why they felt that they needed to do this is is important because it it really then fed into the debate about what happened next. I heard about one assessment like, saying that a, a recently retired diplomat who would be familiar with this subject matter saying it was probably some lawyer who hadn't a clue. He described it as criminally stupid and ignorant and lacking sensitivity. Would, would that yeah. be a, sh- a widely shared feeling? That that was widely shared. I mean, I mean, a sort of a, a kinder take would be that. You know, this paragraph was worked up by uh, technocrats, by officials who who were just not uh, aware of the politics of something like this. Um, but but you know, when this came out, it it was immediately depicted as the EU is now putting a hard border on Northern Ireland because they've triggered Article 16. In fact, you know, just getting back to the whole nature of the of the transparency issue and making sure doses were not going outside the EU uh, when they should be staying in the EU all of the all of this mechanism all, all it meant was that the doses b- would have to get a, a, yeah, an export authorization before they left the factory in other words if the, the you know member states customs authorities would check with the factory look at where the thing was meant to go look at uh, contracts that member states had with pharmaceutical companies 
if there was no problem, um, if there was no cut across to the contracts for EU member states, then those consignments would be fine to leave the EU. Um, now, because of the the single market, if consignments were going from one member state to another, they wouldn't need this export authorization uh, because it's all staying within the EU. Now, Northern Ireland is regarded as being part of the EU single market, so typically there would have been a waiver as well for any shipments of vaccines, say, from a Belgian or a Dutch factory to Belfast. Under the protocol, They would Belfast would be treated as if it's part of the single market, so therefore a waiver would have applied. But somebody, and this is the problem, somebody in the Commission thought, well, hang on a second, because of the protocol, you have unfettered trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Does that not mean that there's a loophole there that that, that uh, doses could go to Belfast and then be spirited uh, across the Irish Sea um, to, to to Great Britain? And that might fall foul of, a, of an, a contractual arrangement we have with a pharmaceutical company. So my sense uh, from speaking to quite a few people about this is that this did not in any way envisage, uh, you know, customs officials stopping trucks looking for doses of COVID vaccines, you know, in Dundalk or or Derry or or wherever. But obviously, by the time this got out, that that was how it was depicted. And uh, uh, and in any case, the paragraph was in there when it was published. Um, Northern Ireland was uh, identified as a potential loophole. And somebody somewhere in the European Commission decided, well, well, that's a problem. How do we solve it? We solve it by triggering Article 16. Right. Now, they have been at pains to point out subsequently that this was never acted on, that this was an initial draft. It was a mistake. They rectified it after probably several distraught phone calls back and forth between themselves, the UK, and indeed Dublin, Michal Martin, was on the phone to Ursula von der Leyen twice, I think, on on Friday night. But it would suggest that whoever came up with this wheeze didn't consult a more experienced Brexit brains trust that would have had an eye to the politics within the Commission. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's the real mystery as to why whoever wrote this um, paragraph. And, you know, my information is that, you know, for someone to draft a, a paragraph that goes into a, a European Commission regulation, which is, you know, a legal instrument, um, they they have to know what they're talking about. They have to know the details of Article 16. They have to know the ins and outs of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So my information is that there was somebody within the uh, UK task force in the European Commission, the one that, that has been headed by Michel Barnier, uh, who was basically at the last minute directed to work up this paragraph that that it so that it would go into the regulation, um, uh, but that that person was not you know um, in an ambient situation telling his colleagues, uh, and certainly Michel Barnier doesn't appear to have known about it, uh, or some of the wiser ha- heads in the task force uh, who would have said. Nice idea, but have you thought have you thought this one through? Um, and and that that was why it it, it kind of got into the draft uh, that was then published. Right. the The damage is 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 doubly bad, really, because number one, it's the triggering of Article sixteen, which had only been suggested at one point by Ian Paisley Jr. 
and was being viewed as a little bit precipitous. Not even the British government were engaging in this. They were seemed to be holding off calls to trigger Article 16. So in, in one fell swoop, that principle was conceded. And in another fell swoop, the level of trust even though that stock was pretty low with political unionism, was undermined further because throughout the Brexit negotiations, the idea of Northern Ireland and preserving Northern Ireland, preserving the peace process and avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland had been there as an article of faith. And all of a sudden, once the withdrawal agreement is concluded, it seems that those concerns could have been dispensed with and dispensed with quite quickly to a European advantage and there wasn't any mention of it. And for those reasons, it could be perhaps seen that the whole issue of Northern Ireland, at least coming from a political unionist point of view, the whole issue of Northern Ireland was put on the table potentially in bad faith to begin with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there was, you know, this was like a, you know, a situation where, where a small bomb goes off and, and then, you know, but it hits, it hits one pillar of the building and then another pillar sort of wobbles. And then before you know, the whole the whole sort of edifice comes crashing down. I mean, the the first, the, the, you know, this this was really an egregious mistake, and the first mistake was that Article Sixteen is regarded as a, a a classic safeguard provision that that you will get in uh, in free trade agreements. And I know we've talked about this before on the podcast. It, it's in a, a free trade agreement that that sets up uh, the European Economic Area, which is a which basically combines EFTA with with the European Union, and uh, such a safeguard is in there, and it's only ever been triggered once, and that was because of uh, a sudden glut of Norwegian salmon um, hitting the uh, the European market, and Ireland was involved uh, in that uh, that particular uh, activation of, of that safeguard clause. A darn shame. A darn shame. Yeah, exactly. Uh, not that I'm a big consumer of, of salmon, uh, but um, so in under Article 16, you're supposed to enter into a consultation period with the other party before you you take uh, that such a measure uh, and to try and resolve the the problem. Uh, and there, are, you know, there are lots of other ways of looking at this to say, well, like none of the um, none of the the grounds for Article 16 were you know were, were at play here. Now you could say that well we're in a pandemic. People in European countries are dying because they're not getting vaccines. So therefore maybe there was a you know an urgent um, societal and economic uh, priority here to make sure that Europe gets the vaccines it needs. And uh, okay, somebody in a very clumsy way reached for Article 16 to to make that happen. Um, but the, you know the lack of consultation, the fact that Dublin wasn't informed, the fact that London wasn't informed, you know, was really an appalling misjudgment. Um, and also because it was quickly depicted as, oh, the EU has just put a hard border on the island of Ireland for its own selfish interests. Well, yeah, of course you could see how unionists would say, well, you know, if the, if the Northern Ireland border was so important to them for four years, and if the if the border guided and you know influenced the entire three and a half years of of Brexit withdrawal agreement negotiations then you know what are we to think so you could see how this was being spun out of control and you know those with pre-existing prejudices towards the protocol uh, could find you know clear and present justifications right in front of them for saying well we were right and right. the commission can't be trusted 
Right. How much of it has been seen as a German issue? Because even before this, there was concern being expressed in media circles and in public debate in Germany, this idea that, you know, Germany, with its large biopharma sector, wasn't getting the benefit of vaccine rollout in a way that a country so well equipped should be getting it and that maybe vaccines, you know, shouldn't be leaving the European Union. And it just so happens that the European Commission is headed up by a German has it been seen as something that perhaps had an overly sensitive ear to German and to to a lesser degree perhaps French concerns? Yeah, I mean, we, we probably have to go back a little bit to the, the, the whole reason why the European Union decided to go for a, a bulk purchasing approach to vaccines. In other words, the EU as a whole would negotiate, a, a, you know, global um, vaccine contracts with pharmaceutical companies rather than individual member states. Now, initially, Germany, France, uh, Italy, and Spain uh, wanted to. They got together with a, a sort of a four-country alliance to, uh, to to bulk buy um, vaccine doses when vaccines became, you know, uh, won the vaccine race or whatever. This is all in, in the spring of last year. Um, but at EU level, there there were concerns that. You know, well, what are other countries going to do? Are they going to be competing against these big, rich countries? Um, back, you know, back in 2009, when there was the SARS outbreak, something similar happened, and that pushed the price of vaccines up enormously. We had a so recent few, rerun of that with PPE and ventilators at the beginning of the ex- crisis as well. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So so I think the, the view was that if the European Commission negotiates on behalf of member states, you know, you pull your resources, you use the, the economic and political heft of the European Union to negotiate with big pharma and you get a better deal and you make sure that, that smaller and poorer countries, um, you know, also get the vaccines quickly and in, in the numbers of doses they need. And this would apply, certainly according to Irish officials, um, to, to Ireland, uh, you know, that that's, they, they wouldn't have got the numbers they needed so quickly uh, if they were left in, in a free-for-all scrap for, for vaccines. Now, bear in mind, this is the first time the European Commission has ever entered such a marketplace. Uh, you know, it's, ne- it's never happened before, but they appointed Sandra Galina, who is the, uh, you know, d- Director General uh, of, or the Secretary General of, of DG Sante, the Health Division, to, to do the negotiating. She, she's Italian. She had a team of negotiators with her, and it was done with this uh, steering board, which meant that the negotiators were in constant cut, uh, touch with, with member states' um, officials. So, I mean, as, as people have said, that's a great idea in on paper. When something goes wrong, then it flips very badly. Um, and especially if suddenly the, the, the pharmaceutical companies are not delivering the doses on time, Europe is falling behind. Individual European countries anyway were having, you know, different issues with how to roll out the vaccines. I mean, there are different issues with privacy, um, you know, with consent. Uh, so, it, you know, different countries had were, were going slowly anyway. Um, but then to suddenly see that the UK and Israel and the US are surging ahead, Europe is falling behind because it had a longer authorization process from the European Medicines Agency. And now on top of this, you have the companies themselves not delivering the doses that they promised they would deliver. But of course, all of that is just extremely raw politics for member states. And the German press had turned against Ursula von der Leyen even before Christmas 
when they could see that Germany was not getting doses as quickly as they, they should. And then people naturally were saying, well, you know, Jesus, if we'd gone uh, on our own bat and done this ourselves, we wouldn't be in this situation. Right. That That's a hindsight uh, argument, obviously. Right. Anybody who's seen queuing discipline in Germany might understand perhaps the psychology behind that one. It's... Not the, best, not, not the best place in the world to think yeah. you're going to join a, a queue for anything. Anyway, which brings us back to, you know, the damage is done now. The Article 16 was put on the table. It had to be followed up then by um, Mara Shevkovic, who is the point man on UK relations on behalf of the European Commission, contacting his counterpart, Michael Gove. How's the resolution to this looking and how much has the UK been leveraging this in its debate? Because Boris Johnson the UK Prime Minister obviously has a constituency behind him of political unionism who are deeply unhappy and have been for some time. Yeah, well, th- this is the whole thing. I mean, th- this came together as a, as a perfect storm. Um, and, you know, just in terms of the sequencing, first of all, yes, Maro Shevchevic was on the phone several times to Michael Gove that night. He was also speaking to the Taoiseach and, and to Simon Coveney. Um and he, I think Shevchevich realised how damaging this was and he wanted to get a video conference uh, organised pronto. I think even even at the weekend, he, he was keen to, to try and lower the temperature. Um, you know, there were apologies uh, flying right, left and centre. He wanted to get the, the first and deputy first ministers on board, Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State. Michael Gove took over the organising of that conference meeting and it was scheduled then for Wednesday of this week instead of the weekend but but in between you know of course we had the explosive uh, response from from the DUP they issued their five point plan to more or less destroy the the protocol um, and one of those points was that they would no longer cooperate with Dublin on protocol issues um, and so there was a, a, a groundswell of opposition to the protocol that had been festering anyway um, that was suddenly given a surge by this uh, Article 16 fiasco on, on Friday. And and the problems that people knew about with the protocol in, ter- in Northern Ireland in terms of supermarket shelves, in terms of the horticultural effect, you know, you can't bring seeds over or plants with, with GB soil on it and so on. Um, these were all now coalescing into a... a, a you know, huge conflation of both the Article 16 mess and look at all the problems that we've been having. Uh, the protocol has to go, uh, right. and then, uh, and then, you know, that that's that sort of set the tone for how things picked up this week. So, in, in you know, in in one sense, the UK government on the Friday night were quite restrained in their response to what had happened. I mean, there were phone calls between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen. The Irish government felt that the UK had been relatively restrained and were happy enough to let Dublin, you know, be the lead um, complainant, if you like, or plaintiff on this because Dublin hadn't been told and, you know, people in Dublin were extremely angry that they hadn't been given any notice of this. The only other time in five years when they uh, were blindsided by a big policy decision was when the UK announced the Internal Market Bill and we all remember how that went down. So, uh, initially I think Dublin felt this was being being handled sort of responsibly by the UK government. 
But since then, you know, I think we've had we had uh, Boris Johnson in the House of Commons saying that he would happily trigger Article 16 in order to prevent a trade barrier in the Irish Sea, even though clearly the protocol which he signed does give rise to, rise, rise to trade barriers in the Irish Sea. And then, you know, we had a, a letter from Michael Gove to Maros Shevchevich, which landed on Tuesday night, um, in which he set out, I think, six demands uh, that the European Commission would have to respond to by the end of the week relating to further flexibilities and derogations and grace periods to aspects of the protocol, essentially you know, reopening the deal that they had done in December, uh, which included these flexibilities and grace periods, and saying, you know, if you don't do this the way we uh, expect you to do it, then we will take unilateral measures ourselves. And, you know, with Boris Johnson in the House of Commons saying that he would happily trigger Article 16, you know, people began to wonder, well, does this mean the UK is now going to trigger Article 16? And again, th- there was a clear link being made in the letter and by, you know, briefings from um, from Darning Street and elsewhere that the intimidation of port staff in Belfast and Larne was linked to this and the the narrative then was early this week that the reaction in, in Northern Ireland to what happened on Friday was so awful that it has fed into a dynamic which is linked to the intimidation of workers at the ports and therefore the political dynamic has changed and changed for good and so therefore um, you know we can't you know a, a a week of abject apologies is not going to bring us back to the status quo ante right. uh, on this. And, and that was this, I suppose that was the mood then going into this meeting on Wednesday. Right. I think it was on Tuesday, was it, you interviewed uh, Maris Shevkovich and one of the things he was saying to you was, look, the Northern Ireland Protocol hasn't even been fully implemented yet. There are sufficient flexibilities within that. It has to be worked before we would even look at changing it. So I think that we should really study how the things would look like if UK would really use and put into the practice all the flexibilities which we agreed upon on uh, the 17th of December. But I saw Michal Martin quoted as well saying it does need some changes. So there is, albeit fractional, a, a, a difference between the position of the Commission as articulated by Mara Shevkovich and the Irish government. Our, the Irish government seems to find itself in a position it hasn't been since it was making up its mm. mind about its approach to Brexit in the first place after the vote was called uh, in a kind of a transitional area. Yeah, I mean, I think the Irish government's position here is is very interesting and it's it's and also a, a, a perilous position to be in. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that the Irish government is at odds with, with Mara Shevchevich uh, over this. I mean, I, I interviewed Mara Shevchevich after, I, in fact, it was after the meeting on Wednesday night and he said that he and Michael Gove had reached an agreement on the 7th of December last year, which, as you recall, was the culmination of months of acrimony and division between London and Brussels over the implementation of the protocol, uh, you know, including the introduction of the Internal Market Bill, including the allegation that the European Commission was going to put up a food blockade of Northern Ireland uh, and so on. And, you know, in simple terms, the UK was trying to whittle down or minimise as much as they possibly could the effect of the protocol in Northern Ireland 
whereas the Commission was saying, well, there are flexibilities within the rule book, but we're not going to rewrite the rule book and we're not going to reopen the actual treaty that gave us the protocol. Uh, so th- that process culminated in a very, you know, quite a dramatic breakthrough in December uh, of last year. Both sides hailed this new agreement. And they were even saying, look, if we can do this, uh, Shevkovich and Gove, then surely, you know, Barnier and Frost, who are there still labouring away on the trade agreement, surely they can follow suit and, and get an agreement. But um, the, the the view in the Commission now is, well, look, you know, we, we had this agreement six weeks ago uh, where we did introduce flexibilities. We a- approved a tra- trusted trader scheme. We had two... Uh, grace periods for export health certificates and and chilled meats going Mm. into Northern Ireland. We had a a year grace period to sort out the whole medicines regime, which is quite complicated. Um, uh, And, you know, the UK uh, not only has it not let these flexibilities take their course, but they have also not kept to their part of the bargain, including this idea that EU member states could look at the UK customs uh, IT system in real time uh, to see what was going in to Northern Ireland from Great Britain. And this is an important point because you remember the whole row about whether or not the EU would have a, a, an office in Belfast uh, and what, what presence they'd be allowed to have on the ground under the protocol. Yeah, they needed uh, remote they, access to the customs IT system in order exactly, to yeah. obviate the need for a permanent office in Belfast yeah. with a permanent so, staff. Yeah, so that was a straight trade-off. Okay, you don't want permanent staff and permanent office. Well, we still need to see what's happening, so just give us remote access to the database, and that, and that was agreed, okay? But officials are now saying, look, that ha- that hasn't happened yet six weeks on um, we still can't access the database and the database is linked to the trusted trader scheme because the trusted trader scheme is what um, what allows the customs facilitations for, for goods going over um, the commission also agreed to a simplified version of the ex- export health certificate for food of animal origin going over but the commission's view is it's up to the UK to produce those certificates in simplified form. They were saying that hasn't been done yet. Um, the UK view of all of this is that this work is ongoing. It's very technical. The IT stuff is very difficult because you have to, you know, you have to separate GB data from Northern Ireland data, and there are data protection issues. Um, in any event, the team around Marash Shevchevich uh, absolutely believe that the um, the UK's reaction to what happened last Friday has now been overdone and is, uh, you know, in the realm of uh, an ultimatum. It's in the realm of the Internal Market Bill. Um, and, and, you know, they're certainly concerned about, about how this is all going to be uh, worked out. Right. Well, in terms of the internal workings of all of this and as it affects Northern Ireland, you're going to go off now and speak to Professor Katie Hayward, who's a political sociologist and writer in Queen's University, Belfast. And as we said at the outset, a foremost Brexit expert. Katie Hayward, thanks very much for joining Brexit Republic. I suppose we all feel we've somehow been brought back from retirement, uh, given that we thought the Northern Ireland Protocol had been pretty much, um, you know, concluded and, and all the issues had been dealt with in December, but it's now back in the front line. What do you make, first of all, of what happened last week and, and the subsequent events? Yeah. Um, hi, Tony. I, I think 
I mean, we never really felt that things had been dealt with. It still felt like a live issue. And there's been a rumbling for weeks now that has been growing. So I think it's worth understanding the reaction to what happened last week in the context of growing unease about the protocol, um, particularly um, amongst the loyalist community. And even last week, funnily enough, on Friday morning, Arlene Foster was giving an interview to Good Morning Ulster on BBC, and she was she was sounding very um, negative notes about the protocol, um, which which is which was a sign that things were sort of coming awry. That's partly due to obviously DUP politics, but then yes, oh Friday afternoon and and the 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 shocking news, and it really was a shock that um, the commission was. Um, potentially about to activate Article 16, completely changed the whole dynamics because of all, all of a sudden, those people who've been saying, you know, this is about uh, the UK-EU relationship, you know, uh, need to make small adjustments to make it work, continuing dialogue and deliberation, uh, managing it sort of in realistic terms, all of that just sort of got thrown out of the window because all of a sudden it seemed like the EU was coming in um, uh, with obviously no notice whatsoever and, and triggering Article 16, which had been something that, um, uh, that certain quarters of loyalism had been asking for since day one. Yeah, and I mean, is it fair to say that the, the unionist um, sort of family was somewhat divided at the beginning of January? I mean, Arlene Foster seemed to take a somewhat uh, pained but sort of stoical view of it, saying, well, it's there, we have to make it work. Yes, uh, and that was, uh, and it's not easy. I mean, the DP did oppose the protocol. I mean, nobody in Northern Ireland, lest we forget, really wanted to be in this situation. So um, she had been sounding reasonable about it. And even, you know, Edwin Poots is minister um, for the department most in, involved in implementing these uh, um, checks and controls. I mean, he had spoken out quite vehemently um, against what he had to do, but he didn't stand in the way. So there was this kind of sense of, well, Brexit is done, Northern Ireland's outside the EU, the protocol has has to work. Um, but of course, uh, we've definitely seen hardline position from the DUP MPs. The, you know, the Westminster debate is something quite different to the one, or sometimes quite different to the one in the Assembly. Um, and that has been continuing to stir, you know, dissatisfaction. And as I say, right from the beginning, if you remember back with the UK Internal Market Bill, you know, uh, some people were saying, well, you don't need to take unilateral action about the protocol. If you do have exceptional circumstances, then you can look at Article 16. So that, of course, then was picked up by DUP MPs, and they've been emphasising that ever since. And then, of course, they got the, those opposed to the protocol got the gift of the, the EU Commission triggering Article 16 on, on Friday. We're looking at yeah. yeah, so yeah, it, it did seem like certainly a gift for, for that constituency to, you know, to really break through uh, and try and, you know, seize this idea of Article 16. Uh, and that seemed to, you know, crystallise for them in, in that way. But in terms of the way the protocol had been had been applied and how things were going in the first weeks. I mean, I suppose the funny thing about the protocol is it, it just 
seemed to affect so many different people in different ways across the board. There were unintended or unexpected complexities with parcels uh, and certain things that Amazon were no longer going to deliver to Northern Ireland. So you can see how it's very unsettling and, and disturbing for people. But were there particular constituencies that were quite badly hit that would naturally look to the DUP to take action? So this is the thing. I, I don't think in terms of the disruption caused by the protocol, and you're right, there are some very real issues that need to be addressed uh, and quite rapidly too. I don't think that disruption fell in particular on loyalist communities, of course, you know, it it, fell, it falls in certain um, sectors. Um, but this sense of anxiety about the implications of the protocol, you know, it's very real. And uh, the lack of a sense of representation from Northern Ireland into that UKE relationship, which is deciding our future and our reality in a very real, you know, very vivid way. Um, that that lack of voice is really, um, you know, disturbing in, in, on, in many fronts, but particularly so for the unionist pro-leave community who, um, and sorry, I should make, make it clear there is obviously that's not to equate unionism with pro-leave, but for those who are pro-leave and, and unionist, then there's this real concern about being betrayed by the British government with the protocol. And now, as was exemplified on Friday afternoon, now being the the uh, being subject to almost like the whims of the EU Commission, which we don't, which is so, you know, even more removed from Northern Ireland than 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 it was before. Yeah, I mean, there was one article that I think it was in the BBC website that struck me, which was uh, this whole question of of seeds and bulbs and nurseries and the horticultural sector, uh, who appeared to be again blindsided by the implications of the protocol in terms of, um, you know, EU SPS plant uh, safety, plant health rules, and I think there was a nursery owner who was complaining about the sudden and I think for her unexpected realities of the protocol and she was saying that yes um, of course she could get some of these products from south of the border therefore there, she wouldn't have to deal with these formalities and, and uh, complications but at the same time she said you know I thought we were leaving as a united kingdom uh, all, all four of us all four nations I mean is there a sense that there's a particular strand of unionism, you know, that may have been not necessarily leave voters, but who are now hit, you know, maybe a, sort of in the middle class business sector who are hit by the protocol, whose votes are going to be important for different unionist parties. Yeah, so there's two, there's two things, I, I think. I mean, one is, and I was just looking back today on some of the stuff I, I was writing about avoiding a hard Irish land border and ballot border management regimes and sort of reminded that, you know, this this really is a, a huge adjustment to to make. And so when you're trying to think about a border management regime, you need to think about, you know, how basically how much how dramatic will the adjustment be? Um, is it accepted? Is this new adjustment accepted in socio-cultural terms? um you know what information is needed 
etc. And I think, you know, we, sh we shouldn't downplay the significance of this adjustment, particularly as it is quite counterintuitive. Um, and that person is right, you know, um, and this is a complexity of it all. Northern Ireland still is in the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland has left the European Union. So where on earth does this, you know, does this border come from? Um, so there's, there's that reality of the significance of the adjustment um, uh, and the significance of that Irish Sea border, so to speak. The, the other dimension to it, of course, is the fact that the UK government has downplayed that significance right from the beginning. It was never clear. and we've, we've got so many examples of Boris Johnson being deliberately ambiguous on that and indeed the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Um, so there's this sort of sh shock involved in um, having to adjust to this reality, uh, realising you've been lied to. That shouldn't come as too much of a surprise, but when you think about it, it really is appalling. Um, and so also, this is a difficulty that we know it's going to get worse, um, that these grace periods will come to an end um, and uh, the adjustments will be even greater. We'll have to choose, you know, will we have things continue to be supplied um, that have always been supplied or will we be prepared to pay higher prices? So this is a, we're in it for the long haul. And I think this is why possibly, you know, whatever comes out of it in the in the, the meeting next week of the of Marasevkovic and, and Michael Gove, it needs to be very clear that the UK EU will avoid any such miscommunications in, in future and they will bring the realities of the experience in Northern Ireland right to the centre because economic instability and uncertainty of course will be will be destabilizing politically in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a very good point, and also, th you know, things happen very late in the day in terms of Northern Ireland's ability to prepare for this, um, because the negotiations drifted on for most of last year, and the Northern Ireland civil service couldn't really start preparing until the UK paper, the command paper, was issued. I think in May of last year. So you're right, it's a huge adjustment that is ha that has to be done um, at very short notice. But I mean, is that only the UK's fault? Or I mean, do you think there that there was some role for the Irish government or, or the European Commission in trying to condition people? The sort of fairly standard view from Brussels has been, you know, where we've worked with the UK and with the Irish government and member states to avoid a hard border beyond that this is what the UK government signed up to they signed up to the protocol and it's legally binding yeah so uh, we got the information very late of course those joint committee decisions uh, that were finalized on the 17th of December I mean that's very late in the day and up to that point the British government had been telling businesses in Northern Ireland um, listen, we can't give you the detailed information that you want right now because we haven't had those UK EU decisions. So it 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 was very short notice. And of course, I mean, the information that the UK government was putting out um, regarding the protocol was primarily aimed at Northern Ireland businesses. So uh, that's a huge, um, um, it's a huge blind spot when you're thinking about the, the need for British based businesses, those in, in Britain, to also be aware of the protocol. So that was a big cause of the disruption early on. 
Um, with regards to the Irish government, so, I mean, it'll be interesting over time to be able to sort of get to the nitty gritty of what was going on. The Irish government, of course, was very careful to be pretty quiet during the negotiating period last year. And there was a sense of a lack of communication between North and South um, on the island, um, even between agencies on the implications of the protocol um, and a wariness of engaging just the Irish, um, and I stand to be corrected, but I think it, generally the impression was that they didn't want to be seen to be interfering at all in the um, future relationship negotiations. And therefore there was a sort of a bit of a gap, I think, vis-a-vis -vis the protocol. Um, I would also have concerns that in the South, there's, there's not quite enough recognition that Northern Ireland is still in the single market for goods. And that message really wasn't being promoted by the Irish government, I don't think, as much as it could have been, um, because the message was the UK is leaving the EU, you need to adjust for Brexit. And so Northern Ireland has kind of got the got the worst of that on both sides, you know, Britain kind of being unaware of Northern Ireland's distinct position and the same with the South. Um, so anyway, we are where we are, as you say, but there's... Um, there's still a, a lot of sort of ground to be made up and hopefully lessons to be taken from the debacle of this past week. Now the protocol is up and running and we are kind of, I suppose the danger is that, that things drift a little bit. There isn't a deadline that is is going to focus minds apart from the deadline of the uh, the grace periods that you mentioned. And, and the DUP has set itself on a, on a fairly hard trajectory to get rid of the protocol completely. Just tonight, I see being Friday night, uh, Arlene Foster celebrating 100,000 signatures uh, from people online to trigger Article 16. So there, there, there are sort of, you know, there are unstable elements that are now potentially colliding with each other. Uh, and this all has to be managed very carefully, I, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that we're seeing now, if you're looking at Michael Gove's letter to Sefcovic sort of complaining about what's happened and, and making demands for adjustments to the protocol. I mean, that letter has set expectations very high. Um, and those, I, I'd be extremely surprised if, if many of those um, demands can be met. Um, and if they are met, even in part, they'll need commitment from the UK to align with the EU in certain quarters. So, the UK government is in this very difficult position of trying to square the circle of giving sucker to pro-leave hardliners, no links with the EU, minimising those ties to the EU, not aligning, etc. And also trying to assure unionists that the union is completely intact and that there's very little change or minimal change in the relationship between GB and Northern Ireland. Obviously, the DUP is really up the ante now. And as you say, there's a slight incoherence in its request to trigger Article 16 and basically get rid of the whole protocol. Uh, but that is now the demand that is being made from the DUP. Whatever comes out of this, I think fundamentally it's about trying to ensure longer term the legitimacy of the protocol. And fundamental to that is a sense of the UK and the EU can respond reasonably to difficulties in managing the protocol and can allow adjustments, recognising the unique circumstances on the island of Ireland. But that's going to take a while, I think, to get to that point. Um, and in the meantime, we have this 
persistent difficulty of the fact that GB, the UK, will always be trying to downplay the significance of the protocol uh, and the implications of it, whilst the EU is always having to reassure the member states that it's taking it very seriously and rigorously implementing the protocol. So we have this fundamental tension there that's going to be very difficult to get around, I think. Yeah, and I think the view in Brussels, finally, Katie, I'll just finish with my own observations and then you, you can just let me know what you think of this. There is a, there's certainly a, a worry in, in the Commission that, given the events of last year with the Internal Market Bill, that the UK is quite capable of taking a drastic step and then using it as leverage. And there, there is a fear that they, they may do the same and, and trigger Article 16. And the, the, diff- the, diff- the difference last year is that, you know, the UK was constrained, in a sense, by what was going on with the free trade agreement negotiations. And also the, you know, the protocol hadn't taken effect. The, the UK was still, in a sense, within the EU's orbit. But now the UK has broken three free. So it, it might be tempting, in, in a sense, for Boris Johnson to say, do you know what, we, we just trigger Article 16 and then let the EU deal with the consequences. I mean, do you think that's feasible or do you think calmer heads might prevail? I mean, I would never underestimate the ability of the UK government to sort of blindside sort of rational commentary on this. But I would think I'd be slightly more optimistic. So the first reason would be that I don't see any talk of what specific measure in terms of a safeguard would be implemented by the British government. I don't see any talk about this specifically needs to be adjusted. So they're not talking about safeguard measures. They're still talking about, you know, minimising the impact of the protocol. So that's that's one reason I'm, I'm not sure if they would trigger it. If they did, what would they actually do? But more broadly, I mean, let's face it, the UK and the EU have had pretty much enough of negotiating. So I, I think ultimately they'll want to avoid a situation where the whole thing kind of blows up again. And more to the point, if they're fed up of negotiating, they're definitely fed up of talking about Northern Ireland, particularly in terms of a crisis. So um, I don't know. I mean, I always try and maybe I'm more stubbornly logical on all of this. But um, I, I do think that there are many factors that are sort of um, pushing against the, the UK really um, going too far and sort of doing something that it would find very difficult to then retreat from. OK, that's great, Katie. Well, look, many thanks for joining Brexit Republic. It's been a pleasure to, to talk to you and uh, keep up the good work. That's Katie Hayward. Thanks very much. All right, that was Professor Katie Hayward there. Fascinating stuff on the internal workings of all of this in Northern Ireland. Tony, I suppose we better look ahead as to what's coming up in the coming days to come to some form of solution on all of this and what the choreography will be in terms of the two sides talking to one another. Yeah, so they they are going to have a joint committee meeting next week in London. Maro Shevchevich will, will travel to London to meet Michael Gove and that'll be a, a bigger um meeting than than we had last week. That was a that was a more sort of informal get together with uh, Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill. Um so they will get down to, to, to business next week. The officials, I believe, have already been in touch. But I suppose the question is, you know, what, what is the scope here for the Commission to, you know, loosen the the rules a bit further, to give further concessions, especially given that the DUP have said publicly that sticking plasters are not going to work, tweaking uh, is not going to work. But 
you know, there, there's simply no way that the European Commission is going to tear up the, the protocol and uh, suddenly, you know, issue blanket derogations on, on some of the... Um, some of the constraints of the protocol. So it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. Remember last year, there was a deadline of the end of the year, which did ultimately concentrate mines. And we did get this done by um, by December the 7th. But now there, there isn't uh, the same deadline, except perhaps the, the grace period. The grace period, yeah. The, the first grace period ends uh, on the 1st of April. Uh, and interestingly, part of the deal last year Require, involved the UK issuing a unilateral declaration saying, among other things, that they will not renew a request for an extension, to, or they know they will not seek an extension to the grace period. Right, that's kind of out uh, the window this week, isn't it? It's, it seems that way. Um, so again, you know, uh, yes, the UK uh, feels it has grounds and it was, it feels very angry and it's uh, kind of saying that everything has changed. But again, the EU will say, well. What value do we put on your unilateral declarations if you're going to break it uh, within six weeks uh, over something that you know we we reversed within hours and and we acknowledged was a mistake? So again, you can see how this is going to be a difficult process uh, going forward. Right, another few podcasts in it then, Tony. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> All right. Okay, that's it for me, Colin Mungo, and RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. And for me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.